Today's episode is episode 188 of Unconventional Humans Podcast. Today's episode is the first episode of 2022. And today's episode is called Psychotherapy East and West. So today's podcast episode is around Alan Watts' book, Psychotherapy East and West. Alan Watts is an English writer, theologian, and speaker. He's known for interpreting and popularizing Buddhism, Taoism, and Hinduism for a Western audience. And so in this book, he explores Western psychotherapy with the ways of liberation in the East. So Alan Watts is somebody I've listened to over the years. I've listened to a lot of his videos on YouTube, but recommend giving them a listen. What I've always got from his work was somebody who is commenting on life with a broad perspective on it with some sense of detachment from the world that is helpful that's what i've always gotten from him whenever i've listened to him it's always managed to put things into perspective for me when i go through stuff in my life so on this podcast i'm just going to talk about some elements that stood out to me in his book, Psychotherapy East and West. One of the main things that stood out to me was the social game. So Alan Watts talks about the social game in terms of the game of life that we're all engaging in, yet we've forgotten that it's a game we're engaging in. And a lot of Alan Watts's work I feel is to do with seeing through the game but engaging in life then with more of a lightness to you so it's not that you're a person who sees through the game doesn't want to participate in it wants nothing from it what I get from Alan Watts is that he's somebody looking to see through the game and be able to play the game of life with more of a lightness, more of an attachment to it. So in this book, he refers to Maya, the Hindu term for it's the illusionary nature of the world. And he ties this to the social game in tied up in the social institutions, just the ways of thinking that we've established over time that we take for granted as concrete realities and what Alan Watts helps to do is to bring some lightheartedness to it and to to even show the reader, show us the things we take for granted in day-to-day life. So one thing that stood out for me in this book was when he was referring to the ways of liberation in the East, and he mentioned the word outcast, and he referred to it in terms of the caste system in India. So he referred to it in the sense that somebody who's on the path of liberation, waking up to social conditioning, a part of that is seeing through what the caste system is founded on in our own thought processes, and he spelled outcast as O-U-T-C-A-S-T-E. 
that was the first time I think I've seen a positive connotation with the word outcast. Because up until this point, I've always seen the word outcast, O-U-T-C-A-S-T. I've always seen it as somebody who doesn't belong, doesn't quite fit in, and I had negative connotations towards it. Yet what Alan Watts did here was that he talked about a person on the path towards liberation, and part of that is becoming an outcast, so that you see through the caste system and you give it up. You're outside of the caste system. So I thought that was very clever. That's something Alan Watts does a lot. He, he talks about language and how it informs our perception of the world and what we believe. So another main talking point, or thinking point, was that Alan Watts, he referred to the one-sided American psychology. So I was going to read a little bit about what he said about it. So Western culture generally rests under the Judaic Christian theology. The United States particularly is dominated by Puritan and pragmatic spirit, which stresses work, struggle, and striving, soberness and earnestness, and above all, purposefulness. Like any other social institution, science in general, and psychology in particular, is not exempt from these cultural, climate, and atmospheric effects. American psychology by participation is over-pragmatic, over-Puritan, and over-purposeful. No textbooks have chapters on fun and gaiety, on leisure and meditation, on loafing and puttering, on aimless, useless, and purposelessness activity. American psychology is busily occupying itself with only half of life to the neglect of the other, and perhaps more important half. So as I was reading that, it dawned on me that he... It's very true what he's talking about there. I've engaged a lot with personal development, positive psychology, that was very westernized, very Americanized. And I've always felt like having a purpose in life is important. And it's through Alan Watts's work that I've realized that that's just one side of it. I do think it's still very important. I think it's important to have purpose in your life. But taken to the extreme when you don't realize that life is also meaningless it's as meaningful as it is meaningless and what tells me to to look at that and also to realize i realize when i was when i am it's not like i was i still engage in psychology of the western kind i can easily drift into taking it very seriously and losing perspective on things and this is what Alan Watts does really well. He he talks a lot about the integrating the opposites. So you can't have good without bad. And he even mentioned that where the mind gets sick is when it starts differentiating good and bad. It's those distinctions that we make in our own mind that can cause person I feel can cause a lot of neurosis and a lot of repressing things that actually make your mental health suffer so a clever thing he said here was that (laughs) there's people so because if you come from the school of thought that everything needs to be purposeful there's a pragmatism to everything you can't just do things aimlessly and for no reason like a child would that then everything is done playfully, everything that is done playfully without ulterior motive and second thought 
makes us feel guilty, and it is even widely believed that such unmotivated action is impossible. You must have a reason for what you do, but the statement is more of a command than an observation. So I put after that, it's hypnotized logic. So when I look at that, observe that in my life as an adult, that is how adults interact with each other a lot. And that's also an assumption I have is that I can't do something just for the sake of doing something. There has to be a means to the end. There has to be an end to the means. There has to be some reason why I'm doing it, improving at something, or I can easily quite, I can even quite easily turn leisure into something that has purpose because I need to relax so I can work more effectively. So Alan Watts finds a light on that, that that's a one-sided way of living and it takes a lot of the joy out of life and a lot of the spontaneity. So he even mentioned it because Alan Watts, he Zen Buddhism is, an, is a, something I would associate with Alan Watts. He's, he studied it a lot and he mentioned in this book about the Zen masters, how they would test the students. One of the tests they would do is to get the student to act spontaneously. And on the surface, that might sound like something that you should be able to do. But in the context of being in front of a Zen master, where there's reverence already in place or in the culture, when he mentioned that, it really, it really helped me to see a bit more that it's difficult to be spontaneous even when you're on your own. But then if you put yourself into a context where there's cultural setting there, it makes it even more impossible. So if you're some in front of somebody who you respect, it'll be almost impossible to be genuinely spontaneous. And you start thinking a little bit about what is spontaneity? And even you trying to to do something spontaneous, if that's a thought process, that isn't spon- spontaneity. So he talks quite a bit about Buddhism, even in this book as well, and our Zen Buddhism. And the main thing that kind of hits home at for me is it's a world of contradictions and it's a world where This is what I was contemplating while I was reading the book. So the Zen masters can... So there's people, students, potential students who go to Zen master looking for wisdom, some advice. They want to become like them. And they believe that the Zen master has something, they has some knowledge that they don't have. Which I feel he does, but it's not an intellectual knowledge. And... That's the difficulty to begin with, is that you're going to a Zen master who's got a wisdom about the world and understanding about the world that isn't intellectual that it's very difficult for the student I was just thinking about this as I was reading this that so I was thinking how do, you, how do you make progress with that I think other than being sincere in your process and Because even to not be discouraged, I think, will get in the way. I think you have to experience the opposites. So if you're on the path towards liberation, following a Zen master, I think you have to engage with it with sincerity. 
because what you're looking for, what I feel I'd be looking for in that situation is an understanding of the world that isn't a thought understanding, it's a feeling, a sensory understanding. So in that scenario, I have to be willing to acknowledge what's really coming up for me. Put myself in situations that are uncomfortable because that that's another part of the process. I think you you have to allow the process to unfold, not force it, and then engage in the different opposites because I think it's breaking through a lot of the judgments your mind has, and that's the goal of psychotherapy as well. That's to see what assumptions, what judgments you have so that you can see them, let them go. It's a letting go process, an unfolding process. I think that's uh, some of the similarities between psychotherapy and what he's talking about here with the uh, ways of liberation of the East. So when it came to talking about psychotherapy, he referenced Jung and Freud a bit. He referenced a lot of other people I didn't even hear of before. So it's well worth to read this book. I think he was saying that Gestalt therapy was the closest Western therapy to questioning the distinction between the inner world and the outer world, which they're more inclined to do in the East than we are in the West. So in reference to Jung and Freud, he started talking a bit about the unconscious because there is this distinction in that type of psychology that there's an unconscious to us that we're not aware of. And he was saying in one sense, it can be a good thing because it allows the patient, person seeking therapy, to freely express things that they feel aren't necessarily them, it's their unconscious mind. So there's a freedom there, a neutrality there that allows you to express something. But then he was also talking about how there is no such thing as the unconscious. That That's a split, because Alan Watts talks, to be honest, I didn't fully understand understand that point. I can see to an extent where he's coming from with the unconscious. You can easily put weight to the unconscious and give it powers that it doesn't necessarily have. So when I used to think of the unconscious years back, I saw it as some like mythical beast that I would never understand. And today, I still don't think I'd ever understand it. I think there's a lot in there. But a subtle thing today that helps me to understand the unconscious is the way I think about it is that it's unconscious thought processes that determine my behavior in the world. That's the level I'm at now where I see that I can actually work with the unconscious in some way. So I don't imagine it as this kind of big, dark cave anymore. There could be parts of my unconscious mind like that. There's plenty of parts of my mind that I probably will never understand. But when it comes to the unconscious, what I found most practical and helpful today is to think about it in terms of unconscious thought processes that I'm unaware of 
that are determining my behavior and how I interact with and understand the world. So I found I found that that useful. And so I think the way Alan Watts is talking about it was that 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 split between unconscious and conscious gets in the way. I, yeah, I don't fully understand his point, but I would relate it to, because he talks a bit about the subject and the object. So when we're interacting in the world, we, we, we have that split in perception. And I think he was talking about in terms of integrating the whole so that you don't see this distinction between the outer world and inner world so much. You see it as more of an expression. Then he also talked about the megalomaniac. So as you're starting to question the relationship between the outer world and inner world, to be cautious of, of falling into megalomania, where you feel like you're more powerful than you actually are giving more weight to it. That's an, I think that's an easy mistake to start making. So he talked a little bit about that. And then just coming back to the unconscious again, he said something very interesting. He said the unconscious, because he was giving the distinction between how Jung saw the unconscious and then how he saw it. So Jung, I think first, is the unconscious can be creative, it seems, only if skillfully pacified by the conscious, which must act all the while like the wary trainer of a performing lion. Therefore, unless the lion is first tamed, the invasion of the conscious by unconscious contents, which is said to occur in mystical experience, will unleash demons instead of gods. So that was Jung's take on it, the creativity dormant in the unconscious. Then Watts said, when the ego is dispelled, there is not an invasion of consciousness by primordial contents from the swamp and jungle. There is instead insight, the perception of a whole new pattern of relationships comparable to scientific or artistic discovery. So with that there, I can relate to Jung's understanding of the unconscious, the creative powers within it, because I think it is something that you do on a conscious level work with over time. There's a patience there. So the way I would think about it is that like when I'm writing, there's a feeling I'm tapping into that's deeper than what I would have tended to feel when I wasn't allowing myself to feel deeper feelings. And I feel like there's a patience on a conscious level, like not, so it's tapping into those deeper feelings that I feel are in the unconscious. So tapping into those deeper feelings, but not letting them overwhelm you. Because I feel like if you engage your thought process too much in these deeper feelings, I feel like they, you can get carried away with yourself. I feel like that's the danger. I don't know whether that's what Jung is referring to at all there, but that's been part of my experience is that there are certain feelings that come up for me when I'm doing something creative that I'm cautious of not letting those feelings, not letting myself get carried away with those feelings 
because I feel like they can lead into mania and they can lead into a lack of grounding in, in reality. So that's what, what I would say about that there. And I also, I get Watts' point there. He did point to how Freud and Jung put some weight on the primordial feelings that need to be repressed if you're going to have a civilization. So I can get that to an extent. And I do I do think that I do think like what's the saying there when when you let go of your grip on your ego that I feel like you can allow your mind to tap into scientific and artistic discovery more. And I feel that way because I feel a large part of the ego is in the current known. So you're not going to be able to find something new so easily in the artistic and scientific field if you're fully inside your own ego. And so I'm just going to use ego there as a synonym for the known. Another point he made that was quite interesting was that he said the West's equivalent of reincarnation is history. So he talked a little bit about the Buddhist belief in reincarnation so that you're reborn after you die. I think in the Buddhist faith, it's not seeing actually as a good thing to be reborn. I think the, the purpose to life is to wake up in one lifetime to break the cycle so you're not repeating uh, you're not reincarnating all the time. So just I found it interesting that he, he said that hi, the, our equivalent of reincarnation is the history. So he said the Western equivalent of reincarnation is our obsession with history. A forward-moving recherche du temps perdu. So it's French for searching for, searching for last time. The fruitless attempt to move forward to a satisfactory future by the logic of an impoverished past. History or better historicism is a chronic hoarding of trash in the hope that it will someday come in useful. It is a state of mind in which the record of what is done becomes more important than what is done, in which there is less and less room for action because of more and more room given over to results. This is why the Bhagavad Gita describes liberation as action without clinging to the fruits of action, for when life and death are complete or live completely, they proceed without trace in an eternal present. So I found that interesting the way he said that, because that, that is how we behave in the West when it comes to history. We put a lot of weight on the past, and we do use it a lot, consciously and unconsciously, to inform the future. The end of history illusion, I think, is... is, is I'll just look that up quickly. I think end of history illusion is that the illusion that we think everything has been thought of that there's going to be no new innovations yeah so the end of history illusion is it's just a psychological process in which people believe they have experienced significant personal growth and changes in taste up to the present moment but will not substantially grow or mature in the future 
Despite recognizing that their perceptions have evolved, individuals predict that their perceptions will remain roughly the same in the future. So that, that ties into that a bit there, but it, it, I just take it back to the individual life. I do feel like the more you fixate in the past and what you've achieved, the less, the more reluctant you are to do new things in the future. So it's going to limit the action taking. You'll probably repeat a lot of the actions of the past that worked for you. It's kind of, I suppose it ties into social conditioning to an extent too, the Skinner or the operant conditioning that is the belief that you've done things that will get you certain rewards so you keep doing those things even though they might not necessarily have been the exact steps that got you the reward i think skinner did that with pigeons i think so that that's the so yeah history our obsession with history seems to be it stops as well from living in the present moment our occupation with the past a fear of debt actually comes up a lot in this book. So he said that existentialists are on the right path by addressing the fear of debt. However, this fear is seen as an insoluble problem in psychotherapy and it isn't addressed at all. And then he goes on to say at another point, debt is a debt of the ego and the coherent story consistent with our memories. So that insight into debt is actually in my view it's a positive one because the ego the coherent consistent story is what often bothers us, us as people anyway that we do things and we think things in accordance with this ego this consistent story we have about ourselves so that can be actually very suffocating without us being aware of it it can actually be very suffocating so you mentioned just in 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 psychotherapy fear of dead isn't easily addressed and then in the existential philosophers it's something that they were actually addressing the fear of dead and uh you're saying existentialists were on the right path there in his view the last thing I want to talk about is the artist. So you mentioned the artist. You mentioned a few interesting things about the artist in this book. So you said the artist is taken seriously in authoritarian countries and not seen as some non-threatening eccentric. Actually, he didn't say that. I summarized that. Uh, uh, that's the that's what I got from what he was saying. So that got me thinking because he didn't explain that. He didn't explain why the artist is taken seriously in a authoritarian in an authoritarian regime other than the fact that he said that propaganda is a big thing in an authoritarian regime and if the artist isn't creating art that supports that propaganda then he's he or she is seen as a threat yet in a system that isn't authoritarian so perhaps a democratic system the artist isn't seen as a threat. He's just somebody who isn't really taken seriously. It's just a non-threatening eccentric. So that got me thinking about why would that be? And I was just thinking about that today. And I was thinking perhaps it's because in a democratic society, capitalist world, uh, yeah, in a democratic society, which is also capitalist, perhaps the, the artist isn't seen as threatening because we're not aware of 
we're not as aware of the propaganda that's in the society. So I feel like in an authoritarian regime, propaganda is more conscious. But in a society that is democratic, there's propaganda is there, of course, but perhaps the people in a democratic society are so used to the idea of thinking that we're living in a free world and we deny the aspects of it, we deny to ourselves the aspect of it that is actually based on propaganda and brainwashing that we don't even see it anymore. And perhaps that's why the artist isn't seen as a threat because we don't realize we live in a world of propaganda and then we don't see clearly that the artist is undermining some of the the ideas in that propaganda. So that was just something I kind of thought about today. And then the other thing you mentioned about the artist is that the artist's problem is to avoid changing the rules so radically that no bridge remains over that no bridge remains over which the public can follow him. So yeah, I get that. That's that's basically the idea that as a creative person, as an artist, you want to express things, how you see things. But in your work, you're you're also there's also an element of if you push the boat too far and it's too far out there, then people mightn't be able to understand or recognize what it is you're creating. I think it was in this book that he mentioned that when somebody goes too far out of the box as an artist, it's not that people don't get it. They actually don't like the work. They actually hate the work. I think he referred to Beethoven when his music came out at the time. People actively hated it. And uh, yeah, so that, that was quite interesting. I think that is the artistic dilemma which he spoke about well there. And then throughout this book, and in general, Watts talks about language, and I'm just going to, the last thing I'm going to talk about here, mention, quote from the book, is that he said, spoken language and daily usage changes whether one likes it or not. The task of the grammarian and lexicographer is to ma- maintain orderly change, not to lay down the law, but to stabilize linguistic change by keeping all members of a society informed as to what rules are being used. So he's talking about language there, but in, I also feel like that quite well sums up the social game, because the social game is wrapped up in language, a social game that he refers to. So, for example, he he also referred to something else in this book that was also quite eye-opening. The way I look at Alan Watts is that he's somebody with a lot of insight like any great philosopher and he's putting out work that is helping us to follow him in our own direction so he's putting out language and words that can help us understand things a little differently but he's not laying down the law and then the changes aren't too too drastic. Because when I be when I when I look at Alan Watts, it's like 
there's a depth to him, but then he's not. There's an element in him too that's that's human that I can relate to, and. person that comes to mind to me at the moment though is Eckhart Tolle he's somebody that I don't so much relate to he feels more like some sort of spiritual guide uh, whereas Alan Watts I feel very spiritual but at some level he's he feels more human more relatable perhaps because if you read about him he's flawed there's stuff in his personal life he's flawed uh, I haven't looked into Eckhart Tolle's life I guess but Whenever I look at Eckhart Tolle, I just kind of see—I just kind of see some kind of spiritual being. Actually, I think Alan Watts mentioned in this that, and it's something I struggle with. It's for people in therapy who are psychotherapists. So he said, if you go to a group meeting. Of psychotherapists there's a lack of spontaneity and I think the reason was down to an unwillingness to be perceived by others as acting unconscious and that's something that I've noticed that I've, I've struggled with that the more I become conscious of my thought process and the more I become conscious of living the more my fear has been that if I act more spontaneously, it could come across as unconscious and I might do things as well that, that I don't feel sit well with me. So that's a fear there for me. So Alan Watts talked about that and perhaps it's those types of insights that make him more human, that he does place a lot of importance on spontaneity, having fun, playfulness, not being perfect combining the opposite so he's got an embracing of perfection imperfection but the way he seems to have done it is that it's actually very sincere and, and deep that's kind of what I, I get from him whereas perhaps with the example there of Eckhart Tolle it's not even against Eckhart Tolle like, I've listened to him over the years it's helped me a lot but he feels more like this kind of static non-moving spiritual being uh, whereas Alan Watts feels more like very deep understanding spiritually but he's also a fucking human and he's living in the world and uh yeah so that's just what i wanted to speak on the end I got a lot from this book there are only some of the things that stood out to me i'd recommend giving it a read if you're interested in in psychology and you're also interested in learning a bit more about eastern philosophies eastern religions alan watt seems to be quite knowledgeable on on these things on these areas so so that's it yeah if you want to purchase my book it's out now the edge finding your creative edge the journey from plato's cave to the artist's world it's a journey to knowing yourself at a deeper level through creativity and that's it the next book i'm going to talk about is kafka on the shore so i'm going to talk about that on the next episode So thanks again for listening and I'll speak to you on the next episode.